Report Goes to Hollywood. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Jonathan Taplin. Uh, Jonathan Taplin uh, is the author of the new book, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, Bob Dylan and the Band, George Harrison, Janis Joplin, Mick Jagger, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and more. Uh, and I, I have to say, uh, the stories in this book give you a real kind of window into that that time period, uh, especially if you're a little bit younger like me, don't don't not super familiar with the time. Uh, I was I was just telling Mr. Taplin uh, that I I was watching The Last Waltz again for the first time in a few years, uh, which he produced. And it, the the thing that I always come away from after watching that movie is, man, I wish I knew more about that time period. And now I do, thanks to this book. Um, so thank you very much for being on the show. Good I really appreciate here. it. Um, so, Mr. Taplin, uh, he has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, uh, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Wim Wenders, Gus Van Sant, and many others. Uh, he was also uh, the founder of Entertainer, the first streaming video on demand platform in 1996, which is which is an interesting little uh, side side story we can get into in a minute. Um, but I just want to read a quote from Greil Marcus's review of. Uh, your book here, uh, because I think it's it's what will be of interest to listeners to this show. Uh, so here's here's Mr. Marcus. In a concise and burrowing manner, uh, Taplin tells you about the music business with Meyer Lansky behind both MCA and Warner Communications, Michael Milken as the architect of the media landscape that Donald Trump harvested, uh, how with their version of Marvin Gaye's Don't Do It, the band, having trapped themselves with this within a sort of Puritan Puritan destiny, uh, at least for a few minutes shed the hair shirt, or for that matter, why gays what's going on was as politically symbolic as track stars John Carlos's raised fist at the nineteen sixty eight Olympics. This is a this is a book about the power of art to influence politics and culture. Um, it is a book about the shifting and and uh, some would say, you know, kind of kind of terrible state of the uh, industry of art right now. Um, and I am I'm very excited to have him on the show to talk about all of these things. So thank you again for being on the show. And and please call me John. <laughs> oh, I've, uh, not Mr. John, Taplin. You don't John, have to be formal. <laughs> will do. Will do. Uh, so, John, what the the first thing I actually wanted to to jump into here is is a little interesting side story in your book about Robert Frank. Uh, the photographer and exile on Main Street because I think it, it it tells an interesting story about the the massive industry that surrounds any individual work of art, um, especially in that time period and kind of how that has changed to today. But but uh, what the the intersection of art, the way photography and music and everything can kind of play into each other. So could you could you tell us that story? Sure, um, I had done in the summer of 71, 50 years ago, I'd done the concert for Bangladesh, produced it for George Harrison. And about a month after that, I got a call from Joe Bergman, who was the Rolling Stones kind of head honcho. And she said, we'd like you to come to the south of France to interview, to be the tour manager for the tour that would support a record they're making called Exile on Main Street. So I was interested, and they sent me a first-class round-trip ticket to Nice, France, and I flew to France and showed up at Keith Richards's villa. They were there for what is known as tax exile. You know, <laughs> they were Brits, but they didn't want to pay the 75% sure. taxes. So I got there for a 1 o'clock meeting, 
and um, there was nobody there but a butler cleaning up from what seemed to have been a nice party the night before. And so I went out and watched the boats in the bay navigate these giant yachts. And eventually, around 3 o'clock, Charlie Watts, the drummer, shows up. And he was kind of the responsible person in the band, so he was already <laughs> late. And around 4.30, Mick shows up acting as if the meeting had been at 4.30 and he was a little early. And so we start talking and about every 20 minutes, Mick would say to the butler, would you go get Keith out of bed? And um, the butler would come back and report that Mr. Richards was not stirring. Uh, eventually around 6.30, Keith showed up and all the signs of kind of junky alert went up. He was scratching his neck. He was just drinking espressos like crazy. And I had just been through a, a pretty horrendous time trying to get Eric Clapton on stage uh, on Bangladesh because he was also addicted to heroin. And so when the meeting was over, I told Joe Bergman, that even though I wasn't offered the job, I kind of politely declined being considered for it because the idea of having to do that every day for months was scary to me. So mm -hmm. I went home, and about three months later, Mick's assistant called me and said, uh, Mick's here in Bel Air, and we're trying to figure out an album cover. And do you have any ideas? Because he loves the album covers you did with the band and so I was going to his house in Bel Air, and just as I went out of the house, I picked up this book called The Americans by Robert Frank. And if your listeners have not looked at that book, it's an extraordinary piece of work. It was a trip he took across America in 1955, and it's just black and white stills of cowboys next to jukeboxes or preachers by the side of the river in Mississippi. And it's just rings of the blues <laughs> and mm -hmm. so i take the book i go up we have a nice dinner at mick's house and i and i give him the book and i said look everybody knows what the rolling stones look like you don't need to put your picture on the cover again why don't you just pick one of these pictures and put it on the cover and it's just perfect exile on main street and so he starts looking through the book and he keeps saying, wow, wow. And he, and he turns to me and says, these pictures are incredible. We got to get this guy to take our picture. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not the point. And I said, I don't even know if he's still alive. And these were taken in 1955. And he said, oh, you can find him. Go on, go, go. Just tell him that. The Rolling Stones will pay him $20,000 to take their picture. He'll show up, I promise you. So I go home, and I the next morning I call Kenneth Anger, who was an underground filmmaker, and I knew he knew Robert Frank. And, and Anger said, well, uh, he's been living on welfare, and he finally moved up to Nova Scotia to, to his daughter's house. Uh, it's a town's called Mabu, Nova Scotia, and that's the last I heard of him. Uh, so I figured, well, you just call directory assistance for Mabu, Nova Scotia. So I get <laughs> on the phone, 
And it turns out there is no directory assistant for Mabu, Nova Scotia. It's such a little burg. There is a party line in that town. In other words, there's a central operator, and you ask for Mrs. Frank, and they plug you in. Yeah. So I said, I want to talk to uh, the Frank residents, and she said, well, uh, we had a big storm last week. This is in February. We had a big storm last week, and all the lines are down. I said, well, when will the lines be back up? And she said, maybe in a couple of months when the storm's over. And so she said, but his daughter comes into the general store once a week to pick up supplies. So you could leave a message for her there. So she puts me through to the general store, and it just so happened she was there. So I get convince her that this is real. The Rolling Stones really want to hire her father for $20,000. And the next day he calls me and says, okay, send me a ticket. And I got to go to New York to find a camera. I haven't had a camera in a long time. So eventually he shows up in LA and he has this little Super 8 movie camera that he's just shooting all the time. And I take him up to Mick's house and we have a lovely dinner and he regales Nick with these Mick with the stories of the the beats, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, all these people he hung out with. And he's but he's always just taking these little snippets of Super 8. And every night we have these dinners. And one day I caught him rummaging through the the wastebasket in Mick's study and pulling stuff on, putting in his pocket. And eventually the Stones manager gets really upset and said, when is this guy going to take the picture? You know, he's at the Beverly Hills hotel for a thousand dollars a night in a bungalow. So I say, Robert, you got to get them, take a picture. He says, well, rent me a camera. I, I said, I thought you were getting a camera in New York. No, I couldn't find one. So we, we, I get him a camera. We organized this shoot down in Broadway in downtown LA at the Grand Central Market. Very funky place. And Keith, as usual, shows up late. The light is fading. He gets like two pictures. And then the manager flips out. He says, this guy is incompetent. Send him home. And Mick says, okay, send him home, but pay him the $20,000. And Marshall Chess said, what? He said, he deserves it. He, he's a good guy. So I send him home. I thought, well, this was, I give him his check. And I thought, this is really interesting, but a big failure. And so they go about trying to find another photographer. And a week and a half later, the complete cover for Exile of Main Street shows up, which is a collage of old Robert Frank pictures, these little snippets of Super 8 film, some little pieces of paper that Rick had, Mick had written some lyrics on, and the whole thing is there, and it's brilliant, and it's a double album, and it's like a Rauschenberg. And mm -hmm. he, the, it won the Grammy for Best Album Cover. I mean, it was just one of those miracle things that happened. And then, of course... Mick invited him on tour with him, and he made a movie called Cocksucker Blues, which <laughs> nobody in the world has ever seen except about 50 people, maybe. Yeah. 
kind of a legend uh, at this point. Yes. Um, I, but it, it, it is really interesting to me, just this, this mixing of talents and this, this melding of talents. And you, uh, like, are in the thick of it here in the, in the 60s and 70s. I mean, uh, talk a little bit about how you got involved with the band and, and Bob Dylan and uh, what that, that confluence of politics and music was like at that, at that you know, striking moment in history. Right. So I first started hearing Bob Dylan in late 1962, early 1963. And his music, whether it was Blowing in the Wind or eventually Times They Are a Changing or things like that, was completely allied with the politics that I was feeling. I mean, the civil rights movement had really begun. I had seen the Birmingham essentially incident where the Bull Connor had turned the fire hoses and the dogs on these young kids. And I had joined a group called SNCC, which was Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so Dylan's music and the politics of the civil rights movement were just completely allied. So eventually, when I got out of finished high school, I decided in the summer of 65 to go to the Newport Folk Festival. And my brother knew a guy named Paul Clayton, who was a friend of Dylan's. And somehow Paul Clayton got me a backstage pass and introduced me to Dylan's manager, who was a guy named Albert Grossman, who was a kind of legend at the time. He managed Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary, Odetta, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, the Jim Queskin Jug Band. And I was given a job to work for the Weston Jug Band for that weekend. And it was during that time that Dylan, just on a spur of a moment, decided that he would go electric at a folk festival. Mm -hmm. And of course, when he did, and it was not very well rehearsed, and it was not that good, but when he did, it just caused this incredible outrage from the folkies who thought it was like the ultimate sellout. And they literally booed him off the stage. And he was supposed to play seven songs, and he ended up playing three, and then leaving, and much to the shock of the audience. And then Peter Yarrow tried to get him back on stage. Johnny Cash said, play them a song, son, and gave him an acoustic guitar. And he went up and he played one song, called It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, which to me was kind of a kiss-off to the folkies. And then he played Mr. Tambourine Man, and then he left without a word. And it was just like a shock moment because it was Bob saying, I don't care what you want me to play. I'm going to play what I want to play. And literally, instead of saying, oh, they booed the rock stuff. I'm not going to do that again. He asked Albert Grossman to find him a band. And so that band turned out to be a group called Levon and the Hawks that was playing at a little roadhouse on the Jersey Shore. And they became what we know as the band. And they became Bob's backing band. And Bob, for the next year and a half, would tour playing the first half acoustic and the second half electric. And inevitably, whether it was in the U.S. or Europe or Australia, the band would get booed. 
It was just like, <laughs> like clockwork. Yeah. So that was, that's how I got to know them. And then eventually I ended up being the band's tour manager when I graduated from Princeton. I worked for Albert Grossman as for the Jug Band and other groups all through college on the weekends. But when I graduated in 69, I went to work full time for the band and moved to Woodstock. Yeah, I, there's there's an interestingly almost puckish element to Dylan um, at this time, kind of, you know, d- 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 tur- turning his back on folk, not really turning his back on folk, but, you know, saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and, and moving away from being this kind of symbol of the political singer songwriter to something else. I mean, what was your, what was your, uh, take on that as it was happening in real time? Cause I know we all, we, we, we've kind of imposed our reality on that now, but I'm, I'm curious what it was like then at that moment. Well, I think Bob's, art went from the political to the personal and and that was a movement that if you think about the 60s as a construct and say it started in john kennedy's election in 1960 and it ended maybe in 73 or 74 with watergate you know um that movement from the political to the personal was not just Bob Dylan, although he was there before most people. But for me personally, I was still very political in 1968. I was, you know, involved with Martin Luther King. I was working really hard for Bobby Kennedy. And yet, by the time, you know, the spring of 1968 came and my two political heroes got killed within two months of each other. It was like hell with politics. It just will break your heart. I'm going to join the rock and roll circus and that's where I'm going to put my joy into art, into just pleasure, into whatever. And, and that became kind of the construct for a lot of my generation. You know, mm-hmm. we really turned away from it. And of course, in turning away from politics, we ended up with Richard Nixon, which is not a great outcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the move to, you know, managing the band and uh, going on tour with them and, and, and that sort of thing is really interesting to me because it does, as I mentioned, it, it kind of leads to um, The Last Waltz, which we can talk about it in a second. But before that, there was Mean Streets. I mean, you you were the producer. You right. put up the money for Martin Scorsese's, I would say, first big personal film. You know, it was after Boxcar Bertha and... Uh, and 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 another movie, but this is his first big personal film. It's the movie that kind of made him uh, the the Martin Scorsese, right? Uh, how did you get involved with that? And and what was the what was the independent film producing business like at that point in time, as opposed to later working with Wim Wenders and right. others? So when the Bangladesh was over, and after the little journey to the south of France, I I kind of looked around and I realized that none of the people I wanted to work for wanted to go out on the road. George Harrison didn't want to tour. Bob Dylan didn't want to tour. The band was not touring very much and having 
some problems internally with drugs and everything. And I didn't really want to work for Alice Cooper, who was the big touring band of 1972 and 73. And so I just thought, okay, I'll go out to California and see what the movie business is like. And so a friend of ours named Jay Cox, who was a writer for Time Magazine, said, when you go to L.A., look up my friend Marty Scorsese. He's an editor, and he edited a lot of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a huge band fan. And and you guys will share a lot of musical taste. So I went to California, rented a house in Laurel Canyon, and, and called Marty, and he came up to see me. And he brought this script called Season of the Witch, which eventually became Mean Streets. And I was so naive, Sonny, that I didn't understand that you weren't supposed to put your own money into movies. <laughs> you know, they have a phrase in Hollywood, which yeah. I learned later, called OPM, other people's money. Uh, so I, I got a friend, and each of us put in $250,000. And we just said, okay, Marty, go, let's go make this movie. And... Marty had been wanting to make it for so long that he had literally storyboarded every single shot in the movie, which then became a godsend because we only had 27 days to shoot it in. And he knew every angle, every camera move, every tracking shot, everything. I mean, that that whole sequence when De Niro first walks into the bar and it's all red and you know, you got Jumpin' Jack Flash, and 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 I mean, it's that's that was all designed in this thing. That tracking shot, everything, the red, everything. So mm-hmm. it it was just one of those fortunate things when I didn't realize until we tried to sell the film, and the first buyer, Universal, said, "Now nah, this this is not a movie that a major studio will distribute," and there were no indie distributors in those days so it was either the majors or nothing and unfortunately warner brothers loved the movie and bought it and uh so i got all of my money back and my friends money back and and you know i'm still making money off it almost well that was it was interesting there was an interesting little line in your in your in your book that you are still getting a check you know every every year year or so uh from from warner brothers or or whoever with with royalties and that sort of thing is that uh, i feel like that is the exception not the not the rule you know with hollywood accounting and all that is is did is this an unusual (laughs) state of affairs well first off the movie didn't cost very much Mm-hmm. So it's not like you'd run up a budget of a hundred million dollars, right? And mm-hmm. and so it's very easy in in that most most of the talent in Hollywood assumes they're only going to get paid when they do the movie, and that they won't, as Spike Lee calls them, monkey points. They won't make any money off the back end, right. so they demand ridiculous upfront salaries on mean streets the actors got paid scale which i think at the time was like 780 dollars a week right and marty got paid scale for director's guild you know and so and i didn't get anything you know from the making the movie and so 
it it was the kind of thing that the the cost was so low that you know you couldn't hide it you know and and as soon as the home video revolution happened you know we were making money every year and and warner's was honest enough to report that and mm -hmm. we're still making money from the streamers and stuff like yeah. that you know so i mean it's got to do with the the economics of the business which i think you've traced in both movies and music i mean if you think about the music business bob dylan his first album probably cost $10,000 to record. Now, it only sold 4,000 copies, but he probably got a royalty off of it. The mm -hmm. band's first album cost about $45,000 to record. And they were making money when they'd sold, I mean, 30 or 40,000 copies. So, I mean, but once you get to a place where Michael Jackson wants $20 million, then of course you're not going to get money on the back end. I don't think Sony ever earned out his advances for mm -hmm. those albums, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, let's talk about this a little bit about the evolution of uh, the, the business of both music and film, because it's, it's really interesting to me. You know, we, I, we had on the show, David C. Lowry um, uh, a few, a few months back and he, he has his own thoughts as a, as a musician, as a, as like an extremely successful musician um, relative to most musicians. Uh, and I am, I'm curious on your end as a you know producer and manager, what the business has looked like, uh, starting in the 60s with LPs, moving to the kind of CD era when everybody is uh, either dumping CDs at Best Buy, you know, at, almost at a loss uh, that pumps up sales, um, and mm. then and then to the Spotify era where it's streaming and YouTube and you know royalties are are you have to you know have a billion streams to get a check for a thousand bucks or whatever. Right. You know, I'm I'm curious I'm curious what this all looks like from your from your POV. Well, I think it's. It's sad because, I mean, quite honestly, my son works as a recording engineer and producer in Oakland for indie bands, and they just assumed they would never make any money off of recorded music and that the only way they can make money is to be on tour, you know, to go play clubs. So whereas for the band, it was just the opposite. You, you would... You would do okay playing concerts, but tickets for a concert in 1969 were probably $10 or $15 max, you know, not 200 or something. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a huge amount of money to be made off of touring, but you could, you toured so that you would sell more albums. And, and so you could always make decent money if you didn't take too much you didn't spend too much money recording the album, you could do okay. And so, I mean, I think, you know, for me, the biggest problem in the streaming era is YouTube. Because essentially, the streaming business could be better if everybody had to pay into the premium Spotify or pay for Apple Music or pay for... Because those pay at least a decent rate per stream to the artist. But the ad-supported ones don't pay anything. 
I mean, pay a minuscule amount. And so in the ideal world, since I don't think we're going to put the horse back in the barn about streaming, we're not going mm -hmm. back to CDs. In the ideal world, you could put out a new album that would only show up on premium for the first four weeks, say, or three weeks. And then maybe it could go to an ad-supported service later. But as long as YouTube exists in which they have a safe harbor that I, Warner Brothers Records or, or Universal Music, can't stop them from putting up a brand new song of Taylor Swift on YouTube, then there's no economics to force people to go into the premium tier of the streamers. And so, you know, Spotify told the industry when they first started that 80% of the people would be on the premium tier by this point in time. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. The second problem to me is, is there probably too much music? Um, and maybe there's too much video too. So the discoverability problem of how do I surface something great is really hard because if you think of the movie business in 1972 there was maybe one new movie a week at maximum maybe one new movie every two weeks mm -hmm. that would come into the theaters and so that was the new movie and everybody went to see that new movie right right now, there's so much new content every week that how am I going to find what's good? And, and quite honestly, as you well know, on Spotify, there's probably 60% of the music that's listened to by a tiny number of people. In other words, the power curve from, you know, when I did move fast and break things, which was my book, first book, I came to the understanding that instead of the 80-20 rule, which we lived with all through the 60s and 70s, which is that a record company or a movie company would make 80% of their revenue off of 20% of their product, one in five things would be a hit. Now it's 91 in other words, 90% of the streaming revenue comes from about 1% of the product. Mm -hmm. And so Jay-Z and Beyonce and Taylor Swift and Adele do great. But there's a huge amount of music on Spotify that probably only the mother of the musician and his girlfriend have listened to. Mm -hmm. Is is this uh, in part a function of the decline of radio uh, and, you know, to a lesser extent, MTV, uh, just not having the ability to shape and focus what people listen to? Yeah, or yeah, is there? I think so. I mean, in other words, human curation has been taken over by the algorithm. Mm -hmm. and, and the algorithm, as anybody who uses Google knows, is a always benefits what's really popular so that's and now the algorithm can be purchased but go to google or go to amazon and you understand that what they're doing is pushing a lot of stuff for people who've paid to get higher in the algorithm 
which distorts mm-hmm. it as well. So right. I mean, I don't I don't think you know, Bob Dylan probably wouldn't survive in this world, you know, if he had just shown up now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a depressing thought for sure. I, what do you what do you make of the the world of streaming movies? Because I, you know Netflix and uh, Prime Video and Hulu, etc. These these services have managed to avoid uh, the kind of free rider problem. They they are subscription based. They're generating revenue, even if Netflix is losing you know money per year or car- carrying a huge debt load, whatever, um, they are still generating a significant amount of revenue. Do you think the film industry is in better shape uh, in terms of how it how it treats and compensates creatives, or is it headed toward the same uh, kind of crash? Well, I, I think it's in better shape in the sense that it's still managing to extract rents on the on a daily basis from most of those services. The problem for me in the streaming ecosystem is that let's just assume the whole thing was brought about by what people call cord cutting, right? So I, I had my cable bill and it was $180 to Spectrum. And I said, well, that's way too much. So I'm going to just cut that cord and I'm going to get broadband and then I'm going to add these streaming services and that's how I'll get my entertainment. So at least in LA, broadband, just naked broadband costs you $59 for a decent speed to run a lot of streams. Uh, Now I add Netflix, HBO Max, now Discovery, Warner Brothers, now Disney Plus. Pretty soon, I'm way over $100, maybe getting to $140. And I still don't have everything. Yeah. And (laughs) at some point, I don't think the system can support more than three aggregators that seem to have everything. I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. the music business looks like. You've got Spotify and and Apple Music, and they've got everything. So you choose one, and you're fine, right? (coughs) But if I have to choose seven different streaming services in order to to get what I want, I mean, what what good did it do? I'm back paying the same amount I would having 300 channels. Do you think we're going to see an era of consolidation of the sort that we're seeing with HBO Max and Discovery Plus right now? I mean, is it is that what we're headed towards? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I I don't know. So you got Amazon buys MGM, which is a kind of stupid idea, but but anyway, let's let's assume that some something's going to come out of it. I mean, why do you say I I'm curious? Why do you think that that's a that's a bad move for Amazon or MGM? Well, it's a good move for MGM because they they were they were just hanging on. They didn't. Yeah. They got nothing, you know, really, and and they probably licensed those James Bond movies to Netflix or somebody else for another five years. So mm-hmm. at what point is Amazon going to have the the exclusive rights to the James Bond franchise? Sure. Uh, I don't know. Five years from now. I mean, and and is that going to be the decision point that makes you decide you've got to 
have Amazon Prime? I don't think so. And yeah. and you know you've got Paramount Plus. Well, that's not going to survive. Who who's going to, you know, in three years Paramount Plus is just going to go away, and they'll end up licensing that stuff to to Netflix or Disney or somebody else. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, so I mean, it's definitely going to consolidate. And my theory of threes, you know. That there will be three big players that will have a gigantic amount of content and there will be nobody else. I think there are 20 to 25 streaming services right now. And yeah. and that that cannot sustain itself. Yeah, it's a mess. That <clears throat> is this is a thing we we talk about a fair amount on this show. It is it is just kind of um a mess. Uh one thing that you talk about in your in your book a little bit um and I'm I'm curious to get your take on this is uh the the ways in which uh art and culture shape politics so i you know you have a line and I, I i forgot to pull it up before we started but a line about um how it's no it's no uh surprise that we have a uh a a politics that is more corporate and more um, you know, uh, kind of authoritarian, top-down driven when you have a, a culture that is dominated by the superhero movie, the right. uh, big franchise fair, the big, you know, the big uh, uh, studio picture that kind of exists forever. Uh, what, from your perspective, as somebody who was involved in the 1980s uh, with saving Disney, right. um, looking, at, looking at the world <laughs> in which Disney has kind of created this giant octopus of franchise uh you know uh tentacles everywhere how how uh, i'm sorry this is a terrible question because i'm just rambling now but the the uh the how would you how would you look at what is happening with the world of film and how it is shaping the uh the the world of politics and and culture in which we live so if you think back to what we talked about at the beginning of the songs of the early 60s so they were very aspirational. I mean, the times they are changing appealed to me because there was a line about mothers and fathers get out of the way, don't don't hold back your children. You know, I'm so that was very personal for me. That I felt that. I felt my parents were holding me back. If you look at the post 9/11 culture, and let's just take the thing we all talk about every day, which is cable drama, right? So if you look at that, so what is consistent? So you got The Sopranos, you got Mad Men, you got Breaking Bad, you got Succession, you got Game of Thrones. All of these are what I would call anti-hero dramas in which the protagonist is a terrible person who kills people, who sells meth, who's a soulless ad man, who has no morals whatsoever, who probably lied about his whole life. And they're in the middle of a corrupt world in which they battle the forces of corruption, but they're corrupt themselves, and they eventually either emerge or they die. If that's the, the message that you're consistently getting, that the world is corrupt and only the corrupt survive, 
then it's to me not a big surprise that in 2016 you have a bunch of people say, well, let's get one of those guys. Let's get Tony Soprano to run for president. You know, somebody who understands how corrupt the world is and is a bad MF and he's going to clean it up. Well, of course, that's just a, a dream that never came true. But it does seem to me not a unusual notion that maybe the culture ought to take some responsibility for the fact that everybody thinks that we're living in a world of awful people dominating other awful people. I mean, if succession is your idea of a, a nice story about good people trying to do stuff, it, it's of course it's not. Yeah. We uh, yeah the the prestige drama the prestige cable uh, thing has definitely had a very uh, cynical tone ne- it is nihilistic a, it's, it's, I think yeah. in other words uh, you 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 basically convince people uh, as that famous line at the end of Chinatown forget it Jake it's Chinatown in other words there's yeah. nothing you can do and that leads people to just believe well. There is nothing you can do. It's all, all everybody's corrupt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, on that pleasant note, I, I always like to end the show by asking if there's something I should have asked. What, what, what did I, what did I fail to ask? What do you want to tell the audience um, about your book or just uh, culture in general um, that 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 I, in my foolishness, failed to to query? Well, I, I thought this was a great conversation. I would just say I, I end the book on a fairly optimistic note. I believe that every culture goes through periods of regeneration. And I cite the very fact that in 1962, Bob Dylan wasn't the most popular thing in the world. Frankie Avalon and Fabian were. And does anyone remember Frankie Avalon and Fabian's work? Of course not. But Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and this underground thing that was happening ended up being what happened, what what emerged, what became important. And so, you know, I go down to Nashville every September for something called Americana Fest, which is a festival of Americana music, black, brown, white, country, rhythm and blues, hillbilly bluegrass and I inevitably find someone like Rhiannon Gibbons or you know Jason Isabel or someone that just thrills me with their new take on stuff and so it feels like that point in 1962 when the folk music wasn't on the radio nobody understood but it was filling your hearts with joy to hear this stuff and if you could find it when I went to the first record store to get Bob Dylan's first album, they'd never heard of him, you know. But if you could find it, it, it gave you a lot of pleasure. And I'm hopefully that's what will happen going forward. So I'm optimistic. Good, good. Less pessimistic note to end on. That's great. 
uh, Jonathan Taplin, thank you very much for being on on the show. The book again is uh, the Magic Years: Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. Um, again, I strongly recommend it if you are if you are into this period of music or if you want to learn more about it. Uh, like I said, when I was rewatching the Last Waltz, uh, I, it, it, lots of it came together in a new way this time around um, after having having read your book. So thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Sonny. Uh, We will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you then. (laughs) 